I'm very excited to be joined by Tim Shear. Tell me a little bit about yourself and why you got interested in organized labor. Sure, thank you. Well, my first job out of college, I was a nurse's aide at a small Catholic hospital, and there was no union. And I just found uh, a lot of the workers, we weren't really getting, our, not just our fair share, but it didn't seem like our opinion mattered, uh, like our input mattered. Uh, as far as the leadership of the hospital. So there's a group tried to organize uh, the staff uh, across the different crafts, including the aides, the nurses, the aides, and it was not a successful campaign. Uh, and I left, um, I left that job to go to nursing school, but it gave me a taste of what needed to be done. And I realized that there are organizations that will help you uh, if you wanna uh, try and organize uh, a union. So it started me out, and then once I was out of nursing school and working, um, in some cases I was lucky enough to work in a union job, and so I could serve as steward or an activist or a troublemaker, if you like. And in the other hospitals, you know, I did what I could to try and organize the staff. And and this was in New York. Well, I've really been all over the country. You know, when you're young and single, you're foolish. You know, you. You always think the grass is greener. So I started out in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and then went to school in St. Louis, really fine school, St. Louis University School of Nursing. Then back to Michigan, to Detroit, you know, around Philadelphia, and then finally back to New York where I was born. I was born in Manhattan. So my wife and I moved here. We've been here over 30 years now, and that's really where I, you know, where I belong. So what, what are some of the issues that got you that that were um problematic that you felt there was a need to organize in uh in these hospitals well when you see a, a work process that could be improved uh or you see a safety issue that's putting people in danger and management shuts you down it really gets you upset i mean it gets you angry and there were times when i was just so angry i felt i had to do something i was working in one hospital and an intensive care unit, and they had a numerical system for rating the patients for how severe their illness was. And of course, the more severe the illness, then the more nursing hours they needed. So they had this system, and I found out that each nurse was rated as so many, you know, eight hours of work, but the nurse's aide and the ward clerks had equal numerical value. So in theory, they could supply the ICU with one RN four aides and three clerks. And that's what they were doing. In other words, they were working as very short as far as registered nurses. And the system was just bogus. And it just made me so angry because we would have days where my, some of my coworkers would be in tears. Their assignment was so difficult, so onerous, and it was so unsafe for the patients that they'd, they'd come to me crying and say, I can't, I don't understand, I can't do this. And so, you know, for the sake of the staff, for the sake of the patients, for the sake of the family, you just feel you have to do something. You know, you have to stand up and you have to organize. And that's what, that's what we've been doing for, you know, for a long time. And it seems like it is always, these cost cutting measures is always related to making more money for the executives at the top uh, that are continually squeezing the providers and the ones actually adding the value on the floor. What led you to start Hardball Press and 
Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, that whole process and what is Hardball Press? Sure, thank you. So Hardball Press is my imprint and it's basically we uh, publish stories and organizing tools uh, for working people. It's a social justice imprint. So we stand for labor and social justice. That's what we're about. And we have books for children and adults. And the way it started is I was writing novels, uh, medical mystery novels, and they featured a hospital custodian who was a militant shop steward in his union. He was the guy to go to and he was tough. But he was not only tough, he was smart because whenever he went to confront the boss, he'd always bring a crowd. He'd always bring a group of workers. He never went alone. Um, so I wrote these novels and I was, it was a long slog to get the first one published. Uh, it was actually 10 years from writing the first sentence to seeing it on a bookshelf in Brooklyn. But I got the first book published and then a year later, the publisher went out of business. Second book in the series, another publisher picked it up. They published it. They went out of business. Third publisher picked it up, uh, published a short run in hardcover, sold out the, sh the, the run, and decided they were not going to reprint it as a paperback. So now I have three novels in a series all out of print and pretty unhappy about it. Uh, these were the early days of a new technology that's called print-on-demand, where the publishers and the printing company have a machine that can actually print an entire book with a cover, stick the cover, glue it, and spit it out of the machine in one, one just like you, you print out a, a double-sided double page on your printer. Same thing, but a whole book. So this was a brand new technology just starting out. And while I was trying to pitch my fourth novel to small, small presses, I thought, you know, I bet I could learn this. I bet I could learn this technology. So I work with a buddy of mine who's kind of a techie, techie guy. And together we took my first three books and we figured out how to reprint them uh, through print on demand. And, you know, I started selling the books. I'd go to union, uh, uh, unions, I'd go to <clears throat> labor studies, conferences, labor notes and such, hooking my books. And um, I'd run into union people who had written books, memoirs, struggle books, and they couldn't get a publisher. No one would publish them. So they'd come to me and say, hey, Tim, I see you got this print on demand thing. You seem to be doing pretty good with it. How about, how about printing my book? I said, why not? So it was really started as a labor of love. You know, I printed um, a lovely mystery novel by Paul Felton, a postal worker who was working around the facility where the, they had the famous shooting where a worker shot, shot a, a manager. Um, and he had a pretty good, he had a very good uh, mystery novel, published that. I had a nonfiction piece about labor education, published that. Uh, got a children's book about uh, the fight for 15, fight for 15 among um, fast food workers in English and Spanish. Got that sent to me. I loved it. Put it out there. And, you know, after a couple of years, I said, you know, this is, this is not just fun. You know, this is serious stuff. This is really, these are valuable stories for people to read because they really teach people about labor justice and about human rights. So when I retired from nursing after 40 years, uh, I decided to really get serious and try and make Hardball Press a real, a real publishing company. 
Um, that's that's incredible. And how much does something like a on-demand printer cost nowadays? Or or is it? Are you focusing more on the electronic delivery? I mean, I just bought a novel from you uh, with uh, Bill Fletcher Jr., the man who fell from the sky. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering. How much does the capital cost to go into something like that? Well, the initial costs aren't too high. It costs money, of course. You have to pay an artist for designing the cover. You pay a book designer for designing the book. The book has to fit very specific uh, criteria or guidelines in order for the machine to print it properly. So you can't just put a Word file up and send it up to them. So you have to hire someone who's familiar with the formatting issues using publishing software. You wanna hire a copy editor because you're always gonna find mistakes. You're, you're gonna miss the mistakes uh, uh, in, you know, in the book and you need to pay someone to really get it copied copy, copy properly so that the errors. And then it costs a, a few bucks to get it up to the printing company. Uh, uh, I use Ingram uh, because they distribute to bookstores. So there, there are small fees to set it up there. And of course you have to assign what's called an ISBN number, it's an identifier number, that all costs money. So it all adds up anywhere, about a thousand bucks, anywhere from a thousand to $2,000 to get uh, books in print and sent out for reviews. Um, the children's books cost a little bit more because they have a color interior and that's a bit more, but it's gonna cost anywhere from a grand to two grand to get a book out and to get copies printed that you send out for reviewers because there's no point in publishing a book if you don't get people talking about it. So you need to send out copies at the publisher's expense for review. And could you talk a little bit about this last year with COVID and a lot of your marketing and advertising was at these conferences that have been canceled this year. Um, generally, how what what you already mentioned a few conferences you'd go to, but these seemed like they were very useful in uh, raising the profile and, and actually distributing a lot of these books. Yeah, of course we were all disappointed. Everyone in labor was disappointed that we had no labor notes. The Working Class Studies Association Conference was canceled. The Association of Labor Educators, Labor Working Class History, LAWCHA, Detroit History Society, Northwest Labor, you know, they're all uh, canceled. Um, and so that's where my bread and butter is because it's not just that I go there and make sales, but I make contacts. And the hope is that some people will buy the book for their union, you know, at a, at a steep discount, buy it in bulk, uh, or a labor educator would buy it for their classroom. So this year has been really tough for small businesses and that's what I have. So it's been very, very tough uh, to get sales. You know, I rely on social media uh, to get the word out, but people, at least the impression I have, people are either uh, watching the news as we were up until the election, or they're watching Netflix, you know, they're watching movies and book sales have been down, you know, worldwide. But for me, especially book sales have been very, very slow. So it's made it difficult to bring in, bring new books out because no money coming in, it's hard to assemble new books. And do you have any connections with some of the labor-oriented universities and potentially even high schools that um, may be a little more class conscious? Yeah, sure. I do have contacts uh, among a number of uh, labor studies programs, history programs, English programs. I had a lovely time uh, not long ago 
uh, with a Zoom chat with a group of undergraduates at Northeastern University of Illinois in Chicago. They had read one of my Lenny Moss novels because the novel, which came out almost three years ago, featured a nasty, virulent vir virus outbreak, a Zika virus outbreak in Philadelphia, and it was uh, causing great fear among the pregnant women. And of course, people were coming into the hospital, they were running out of PPEs, they were running out of isolation rooms, they were running out of gowns, and it, it was kind of a prescient little novel. So the teacher thought it would be useful for the students to read it, since it kind of foreshadowed what's happening today. And we had a very uh, nice discussion about what are stories? What is a story? And what is the, the power of story? How does the story change your life? How does it teach you? How does it move you? Um, and, you know, I've, I've done a number of uh, visits to uh, community colleges in New York, in New York, around the various boroughs. And so now, of course, I visit with them on Zoom. Uh, and I try and reach out to the students and give them uh, advice and help on how, how they can become more effective writers. I'll give you one quick example, if I can, Evan. I was at a, a Kingsborough Community College last year, and we were talking about what makes effective writing. And I said, I said, suppose your grandmother gives you a gift and you send her a thank you note. And you write, dear grandma, thank you for the lovely gift. I really like it. No, that's not writing. If you're gonna write anything, anything at all, write it in your natural voice and write it from the heart. So say, grandma, every time I see the gift that you gave me, I break out into a smile. I wanna giggle, it's so sweet. I love it so much, I love you so much. That's a letter. So it doesn't matter what you're writing. Doesn't matter who you're writing to, but really put, to, put some power, put some punch in your words. And you know, this is one of the greatest things about being an old writer is you can, you can talk to the youngsters and give them some, uh, give some, some tips. <laughs> well, that Zika uh, project that you're working on, uh, with, you said Lenny Moss, your mm -hmm. third uh, novel. Yeah. So today we're talking about the book project, Pandemic Nurse's Diary. And it is a very interesting compilation, I must say, because there's so many different angles on it. And I'm also helping um, produce a, an audio of a few of the essays with a nurse I know, uh, Riverside. And I guess taking a step back, how did this project come together and who is Nurse T? Sure, well, Nurse T is a nurse, a veteran nurse who works at an intensive care unit in one of the New York boroughs. And she wants to be anonymous and she wants her facility to be anonymous. So that's how we gave her the name Nurse T. Uh, she contacted me uh, early on in the pandemic in March when things were really going, really going bad in her facility. And she knows me through my Lenny Moss novels and through my labor, my labor work. Um, so she sent me some messages about how terrible the conditions were. Uh, the feelings of fear, anger, sorrow, it's so much loss. And at one point she wrote to me, Tim, when this is over, you've got to write a book. And I wrote back to her and I said, no, Nurse T, you've got to write the book and you've got to write it now because people need to know what's going on now. So we started exchanging information. She would send me stories. I would then revise them, shape them, add a little color to them, send them back to her and say, is this honest? Is this true? Is this you? And because I am an old ICU nurse, worked for 40 years, 
I was able to put myself in her shoes and having written, you know, 11 novels, you know, I had a little bit of experience with shaping a story. And so together, you know, I helped her and shaped this diary. And um, once the diary was finished, we then explored what kind of feelings uh, the healthcare workers were, were going through, what kind of emotional trauma. And we came up with a number of meditations and writing exercises, uh, which, which she and I both feel could help heal some of the emotional wounds that they suffered. So, you know, it came out of a collaboration, her stories, and my being the editor for her and, and her coach. Yeah, that's something that I really appreciate about this, this work is that it goes beyond these very heartfelt, sorrowful uh, essays, but then they do end on hope, many of them. And you also have these writing exercises and even the four second meditation uh, exercise, which I, I think every child should be equipped with in this crazy world and every adult and we should be teaching that everywhere and and then meditations actually on specific emotions like sorrow anger and loneliness uh is this have you ever done anything like this is this any type of project where you you've incorporated uh almost psychosocial with creative writing and nonfiction? well it's funny but years ago my wife and i uh took a train ride in an old train through Arizona and the gentleman who was leading the leading the the tour he would be talking to us uh, about the local flora the local habitats and the local populations of the native peoples who live there and he said that the the Native Americans there would set up their lodges going facing east to west so that when the sun rose it would wake them and they would get up in the morning and they would say a prayer to the, their brother's son. And he spoke the prayer in English and then in the native language. And that really touched me for some reason, because I, I just found it very moving. And so for many years, I started my morning, the windows of our apartment faced the east. So in the morning, the sun came up, I'd start and I'd say a little greeting to the sun and take a moment to meditate. Um, and it's very helpful. It's very helpful to take a moment uh, to clear yourself. The other thing is that I, I have an old beat up old guitar and my, I started taking guitar lessons during the pandemic uh, with, a, with a fellow in New Orleans and he encouraged me to use music as a meditation. And the way you do that is you pluck one note or maybe an octave, the same note, an octave, and you pluck it and pluck it as a drone. It's called a drone and you pluck it and you just listen, close your eyes and listen to the note and listen to the color of the note. And uh, it's, it's very relaxing and soothing and it centers you. And so there are ways that, you know, where either a musician or anyone, you can just take a moment to try and get all the clutter and all the angst and all the worries and put them aside. Um, and it's just a very helpful thing. The guitar almost like an, an ohm sound where you're you're really focusing on that one resonance. Exactly. Very cool. <laughs> you also have drawings uh, in the book that are, mm -hmm. are really beautiful sketches and uh, you put together some music as you, you uh, discussed earlier. Um, can you talk a little bit about who did the drawings and, and what this music is about that you produced? Sure, sure. Well, I uh, two of the children's books that I produced 
the illustrations were done by a wonderful young artist named Anna Usachiva. And she did uh, lovely drawings. And so uh, Nurse T and I, when we talk about the book, we thought we'd like to have some simple black and white illustrations uh, to just adorn it and kind of show uh, what, what we were facing, what they were facing in the hospital. So uh, here's an example of it. So um, I, I called up Anna and I said, would you be interested in doing some black and white for me? And she was thrilled. So I sent her a number of uh, photographs as models and say, okay, use it as a model and then draw something like it. Not the same identical, but something like it. Use it as an, as an idea. And she just created some beautiful, beautiful uh, illustrations for the book. And a number of people have commented how much that they liked them and, and how much they moved them. So I've been working with uh, nurse Kim Hoyer out in Riverside, California, who's, who's helped with some of the, the audio of uh, the readings. And she's been impacted listening and, and reading and going through the process. And to take a step back on the, the bigger question of essential workers, and there's all of these people in this country and around the world who are providing essential work at this time during this pandemic and their story's not getting out. And I guess what you've done with this diary is to really try to capture that story and try to humanize that from outside of the, the hospital. And, and it's, it's just so appreciated and such a, a beautiful project. And, and what are some of your thoughts about how you'd like to see this distributed uh, as you're releasing it going forward? Sure, well, you know, being a, uh, a small imprint with no budget, uh, I have no marketing, you know, no money for marketing. So I rely on word of mouth and social media. And again, I rely on my contacts in, in labor ed. And so I've posted images and reviews of the book on um, not just my Facebook page, but on pages that other essential workers are like, likely to read. Um, and it's a very slow process, getting people to buy a book. It's very tough. But I, I try and share anytime a new review comes out, uh, I share it on the uh, nursing and other allied health profession Facebook pages, and they're kind enough to let me post it there. So the word gets out to them, and then people share it. Uh, so that's that's uh, one way. And then, of course, there's email. I have mass emails. And next year, there will be some virtual conferences. So hopefully, through the virtual conferences, I'm going to be able to create some videos because I won't be at a physical table hawking my book, right? Saying, hey, you got to check this out, brother. I can't buttonhole people. So I'm going to create these short videos like your, like a podcast and, and with music. And hopefully at these conferences, even though they're virtual, in between sessions, they'll play some of my videos and people will get a taste of them. And if I could just say a quick note about the music. My son asked me to take guitar lessons from a friend of his when the code would really clamp down because the musicians were all going broke. They were really, their income dropped out. The clubs were all closed. And I didn't expect to get much out of it, but he taught me so much. He unlocked a world of melody and harmony and syncopation. And so I'm playing my guitar like I've never played it in my life. And these melodies are coming up out of the guitar and they needed lyrics. And so I started writing songs for my coworkers in the hospital. And the songs are really to honor them. 
and, you know, to speak to them and speak for them, you know, to give them voice. And I put together a virtual band, which means I would record a vocalist with me strumming the guitar. Then I take the computer and the microphone to a bass player. He'd take it off his hands. He'd record his bass run in his apartment. He'd pass it on to a violin player who would add a violin track. I'd send it to the drummer when all the tra- when all the songs were were done, and he'd add drum tracks to all the songs. And it was truly a a, a, a pandemic band. It was like a truly virtual band. It was the craziest process, but we made it work, and uh, it's been uploaded now. And hopefully next week they'll be available. The band is called The Pandemics. So man. Yeah, I, I love the few songs I've heard, so I look forward to hearing the rest of them. So the question of labor issues, and there's a lot of people who've grown up in this country that have no class consciousness, have no interest, or at least they don't think they have any interest in labor issues or labor-focused writing, fiction, nonfiction. So why, why, do, why should people care about labor issues? Yeah, that's such an important question, Evan. And it, it's such a sad, such a sad lament that the corporations, the wealthy people who own the shares in the corporations, they don't want to pay w- working people what they deserve. They want to maximize their profits. And in order to maximize their profits, they want to minimize their labor costs, which means if you look at the, the gig economy, they don't even want to have workers that are considered employees. They want everyone to be independent contractors. So they don't have to pay health insurance. They don't have to pay unemployment insurance. They don't have to pay, uh, they pay for uh, time off for holidays. Uh, it's like a Christmas story, uh, you know, where Ebenezer Scrooge doesn't want to pay his one employee Christmas off with a pay, with a day's pay. Why should I pay you a, a day's wages? You're not earning, earning me anything. And so there's a, there's a long-standing conflict between the interests of the owners who want to minimize their costs and the workers who want a fair, fair share, not to mention a safe environment to work in, you know, not to mention time off for, for paternity leave and so on. And so you know, when a worker goes to a boss and says, I, I really deserve more, I'm not, I can't live on this, my children are going hungry, the boss can say, well, too bad, take a hike, I'll get somebody else. The only way that working people can get any kind of close to a fair deal is if they work together and organize. And I learned that uh, as a young, very young person in, in high school, there was a huge newspaper strike in New York City. My dad was the reporter. It was over the Christmas holidays. So, and uh, I was maybe 12, 13 years old. And we didn't have much money. And my dad went into the city on the bus and he came back with a turkey and stuffing and all the dressings that the labor, other labor unions had all pooled their money and had bought them a, a Christmas dinner for all the people on strike. And I learned at a very young age that it's only with solidarity that we get anywhere. So that's a message that unfortunately is suppressed in a lot of the mainstream media. If you look at the TV shows, how many TV shows show workers you know, demanding their fair share in, in a, in a storyline. Um, so anyway, so I, I just trying to do my part by putting these stories out there and get them read as widely as possible. And that's why we have to support independent publishers like Hardball Press and, and all the work that you're doing with all, all of your writers. And to raise this issue about 
essential workers are the ones who are creating value. You know, the people who own the capital can only produce and generate actual true value through the labor of people working on that capital. And labor precedes capital, it comes before capital, and we should value it such. And uh, all the work that you're doing is really, really helping with that. And uh, we need to support independent publishers, so everyone should get this uh, pandemic nurse's diary. So in, yeah, there it is. And so in closing, where do you see optimism and hope? Uh, well, I see a little bit of optimism in so many young people joining together across racial and ethnic lines, across religious lines, and demanding an end to police violence against people of color, uh, fighting for the climate to say we have to change how we produce our energy, we have to change how we consume things. I see a lot of you know, mass work in the streets. And so that's, that's very encouraging, uh, very encouraging to me. My wife here is joining me here for a moment. Hello. And, uh, and uh, so I see a lot of, I see some optimism in there. And I do see a little bit of optimism in the progressive candidates who have won election, especially on the local level. We've had some really good people uh, winning office uh, in, in state and city uh, positions, political positions. Uh, and we have a few in Congress. And so I think that that's a sign that maybe the, the, the dam is broken and maybe there will be a growth in this class consciousness, this consciousness then working people have to stand together and not be fooled. You know, so many working people were fooled by Trump and supported him out of admiration for him because he's wealthy, they don't understand that he stole his wealth. His wealth is stolen and he is not your friend. And hopefully there'll be more of an awakening, uh, by, especially among the young people and, and they'll see that. Well, thank you very much, Tim Sheard, Hardball Press. Uh, and everyone should go out and get the Pandemic Nurses Diary. So thank you for all your work. Thank you so much, Evan. Close your eyes Time to sleep now You have someone To call to The pain is gone It will keep now For a patient And nurse to care for you The ward is still Just patient